This can be found on page 927 of the Pew Bibles. Jonah chapter 2. Jonah's prayer. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, the seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Heavenly Father, we just pray now that um, you would speak to us through your word as, you, as clearly as you spoke to Jonah at the beginning of chapter 1. So, Father, I just pray that I would speak in your name, the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, um, we finished chapter 1 with uh, this great storm, Jonah having run, having rebelled against God without even so much as a a by your leave or an argument, he, he, he runs and he's thrown overboard and the last chapter ends with him being swallowed by a great fish that God had sent. And I have to confess, we had a lot of uh, fun uh, on the clergy meeting discussing whether or not it was actually feasible for someone to um, survive being stuck inside the belly of a, of a great fish. And um, I came across this little bit of Research on the internet, not very academic, but uh, here goes anyway. You may be even surprised to hear that Jonah is not the only human ever to have survived such an ordeal. During a voyage of a whaling ship in February 1891, a sperm whale was spotted and pursued in the vicinity of the Falkland Islands. In an attempt to harpoon the whale, one sailor drowned while a second one disappeared. Eventually, the whale was killed and drawn to the side of the ship where it was dissected. The next day, the stomach was hoisted on deck and opened, with a missing sailor lying inside. The sailor was unconscious, but alive. He was eventually revived and, after a time, resumed his duties on board the whaling vessel. Gosh, I bet you he had a new respect for, for, for whales. But uh, the point to make is it really doesn't matter um, whether you have an issue with whether this is physically possible or not, because we mustn't forget that the God who, the creator God who made the heavens and the earth, who came down as man and died for us on the cross and was resurrected, fed, you know, fed 5,000 people on a few loaves of fish, it's a trifling detail. 
his ability to produce something, some sort of life-saving animal, even if it was a one-off special design of fish. We mustn't sort of get caught up in whether it was actually possible and what the stomach enzymes of a sperm whale are like and whether or not they'd be digested. There's the other, one more thing before we get to the text that I wanted to address. And it's over this saying of three days and three nights, as you're aware, it does crop up throughout the Bible, particularly when uh, Christ says, as will come later in the passage, to saying he, he will be uh, you know, dead and buried for three days, and three days and three nights. And it's important to understand that in the Hebrew idiom, the expression a day and a night does not mean 24 hours. So three days and three nights does not mean a period of 72 hours necessarily. The expression a day and a night could refer to a portion of a day and a night. Um, it's called an inclusive way of reckoning time, and I'm told it's still used in some parts of the world. So again, we mustn't get hung up on the fact that, uh, and I remember as a child always thinking, hang on, if Jesus was killed on the Friday and he rises again on the Sunday, that's only two nights. And it really confused me for many years and no one explained it to me. But we mustn't get hung up on that. To the, to the Hebrew reading this at the time, it would be quite clear that there was just a, a period of time. So bearing these two points in mind, let's get to the text. You may remember that at the beginning of chapter 1, uh, Jonah hears God's word and then does a runner. He doesn't even stop to argue with God, to uh, question God. He just runs. But this time, his action is the right one. He prays. And what an extraordinary prayer this is. I was contemplating what I might have prayed. And I do confess that I do a lot of shopping list praying. And I know other people do that as well. And I suspect I would have been inside the belly of the whale praying for copious quantities of fresh air. Um, then perhaps praying for transport to be provided once I arrive at the beach. Uh, perhaps some donkeys or a mule to take me to Nineveh. It was quite a long way. And of course somewhere to park the aforementioned transport once I got to where I was going. But I think the remarkable thing about Jonah's prayer is there's nothing sort of on a, of a practical note about it. It's much, much more meaningful. And I suppose one could preach any number of sermons on the importance of prayer, how to pray, when to pray, or indeed where to pray. There's fertile ground, this passage. But I'm not going to look at any of those. I'm going to look at two things this morning. I'm going to look at what inspired this prayer, and I'm going to finish at looking where the prayer leads us to. And I think reading Jonah's prayer, if you have read uh, any other parts of the Old Testament, you could be excused for sensing uh, some real deja vu. Some of the verses have a very familiar ring to them. If you look at verse 3, Jonah prays, You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. And then if you were to flick to Psalm 42, verse 7, you'd read this. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. Or just to look at one more, verse 5. 
Jonah prays, the engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me. And if you were to look at Psalm 69, you'd read this, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Now you may just think, well, there's some lovely sort of poetic assimilation here. But isn't it interesting that just as Jonah is facing death square in the face, as his life is ebbing away, his prayers are inspired with the songs and the psalms he would have learned as a child. In the darkness, he remembers what he learned in the light. One would imagine that Jonah, a God-fearing Hebrew, would have spent many hours listening to the psalms being read and sung and recited and joining in when he was old enough to do so. In times of thanksgiving, joyful psalms would have been sung. And in difficult times, other psalms, for example, Psalm 69, which I've just referred to, would have been sung, perhaps, as a prayer. The point is that to Jonah, the psalms were a reservoir of hope and theology. And my first question to us all this morning is, do we have the same sort of reservoir? Do we have a reservoir of scripture to draw upon when times are getting hard, when we're ill, when we're worried, when we're grieving perhaps, or indeed when we too are facing death, that one appointment that we all, each and every one of us, how rich or poor we are, we all have that one entry in our diary. The only thing is we don't know when it is. I doubt many of us will be stuck inside the belly of a whale, but There's no question all of us will be faced at some stage in our lives, and I'm particularly conscious in this congregation, more so than perhaps the others, of the hardships and realities of life and death. And so I encourage us all to take a lesson from Jonah's, to take a lesson from him, to take a leaf out of his book. And if we haven't already got such a reservoir of scripture to draw upon, let's commit to start one today. There's also a lesson from Jonah, and it's about somehow hanging on and trusting God in the dank, dark, depressingly low points of life. And you couldn't really get much darker and danker and lower than Jonah, of course, when he was praying this prayer. It's a powerful prayer that Jonah cries out to the one person he knows can save him. No one else can save him. He knows that. And so in verse 1, he cries out in distress, picturing himself as having been buried alive, which must be one of the most ghastly things to have to endure. He acknowledges God's sovereignty over the sailors and the weather by saying, you hurled me into the deep. Not the sailors. It was God who hurled him into the deep. God just used the sailors to do the physical handiwork. And he acknowledges in verse 4 that God has banished him from his sight. But then he says, in what is possibly an echo of Psalm 27, verse 4, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. So it's interesting. Here is Jonah saying that whilst God has banished him from his sight, and that's quite a powerful, quite a powerful statement to make, yet once again he will see his holy temple. And I just want to unpack what I think may be going on here. He knew that even in the depths of the fish's stomach, far under the surface of the sea, 
he was not beyond God's reach. He knows that he can be forgiven. As we see at the end of the prayer, Jonah knows exactly where his salvation comes from. It comes from the Lord. But there's an irony here that despite Jonah's wonderful faith, absolute trust in the Lord as his Savior, knowing that he'll be forgiven and restored and one day he'll see the Holy Temple again, that sense of forgiveness doesn't extend to his own attitude towards the Ninevites. For those of you who weren't here uh, last week, um, we were looking at the fact that Jonah, Jonah was behaving atrociously, really, because he didn't want the Ninevites forgiven. He didn't want to preach to the Ninevites just in case they repented and then God would forgive them. So he's very happy on the one hand to receive God's forgiveness for himself, but he's not yet happy to pass that, uh, that forgiveness on to the Ninevites. Well, I don't think he's really seen the error of his ways yet. He's certainly repented, but he hasn't seen the full picture yet. And we'll have to wait until next week to see what happens. But what else does he pray? Well, in verse 6, he, he says, um, But you brought my life up from the pit. Which I think, just following on from my earlier point, I think he, kn he knew that the miraculous provision of this fish would save him from drowning. And in verse 7, that as his life was ebbing away, he remembered his Lord. And, this, and thus his prayers reached God, even from the inside of the belly of the fish. There's, uh, I think I'm right in saying that submarines carry uh, emergency uh, marker boys. It's a shame James Gunn isn't here because he's an ex-submariner and he would have he would have told us, but I think uh, they carry these things that um, if they run into trouble underwater and they can't get to the surface, a hatch opens and this thing rises up to the surface where some sort of parabolic umbrella opens and the communications start and the lights start flashing and help is summoned. And so there's a picture of Jonah's prayer rising in much the same way up to God. And he acknowledges that salvation comes from the Lord, no one else. And that, of course, is absolutely crucial for us. We must understand there is no one else we can turn to who we can trust like we can trust God. And so often, I myself and I come across people who endure some sort of crisis and their first reaction is to use their minds to start planning and thinking a way out of the crisis. The letters that have to be written, the telephone calls that have to be made, the meetings that have to be attended. How am I going to get out of this crisis? So often we forget that the first place we should turn to at a time like this, like Jonah, is God. But I want to spend the rest of the talk focusing on answering the question, why is this little book in the Bible at all. Yes, it's an amazing story, but its sheer brevity lends a, perhaps a certain lack of substance to it. The answer is that God gave it to us for the purpose Jesus made of it. This little book, tucked away at the end of the Old Testament, is in Christ's own reservoir of Scripture. If we turn to Matthew chapter 12, 
It's uh, a passage that comes as Jesus is performing miraculous signs and quite naturally immediately facing opposition. He just performed a miracle of healing which had just astonished all the people and was a sure sign of his messianic identity. But of course it's not what the Pharisees want to see. In verse 38 of chapter 12, the Pharisees and teachers of the law say to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. They'd already seen them. They'd already heard all these eyewitness reports. The whole place was abuzz with talks of the signs and wonders. They were, in effect, wanting a sign to confirm a sign, but they were not sincerely seeking to know Jesus. So Jesus answers them, the wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. But they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. Jesus knew that they'd already seen enough miraculous proofs to convince themselves that he was the Messiah, if only they would just open their hearts. But they had already decided not to believe in him. And Jesus knew that more miracles would not change that. Many people have said, I confess even myself have thought this, wouldn't it be great wouldn't it be great just to see lots of miracles? You could have them televised on CNN. Then we, we wouldn't have to bother with all this evangelism. You know, we could just see some incredible selection of miracles. And then everyone would just know that Jesus is God. But I'm afraid, I think, Jesus' response to the Pharisees applies to us. We have all the evidence we need already. We have the evidence of Christ's birth, his death, his resurrection, his ascension and centuries of work in his believers around the world. And so instead of looking for additional evidence of miracles, we must accept what God has already given us and move forward. Jesus, by describing Jonah, points to his own resurrection after three days and three nights and to his own messianic credentials, being one greater than Jonah. So Jesus says that Jonah is the only sign you'll see. And so this book takes on this incredible sort of Jesus dimension. And so tucked away in the Old Testament is this hope in the past for the future hope of resurrection. As Paul wrote in Romans chapter 15 verse 4, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. If Jonah had not emerged from the fish, he would not have preached at Nineveh and they wouldn't have repented. If Jesus had not emerged from the grave, there would be no Christianity. Jonah stands for all time as a sort of Jesus figure, a type of Jesus. There are those who, like the Pharisees, of course, do not want this story to be true. They do not want the story of the resurrection to be true either. They're happy to live their lives for themselves, for their enjoyment, with no sense of responsibility or reference to a higher authority. But for believers, 
This little book, pointing as it does so clearly to Jesus Christ, it elevates our vision. It widens our horizon to take in all of eternity. Because of Jesus, we will all live together for all eternity. And we can start to live the resurrection life right now. We have a foretaste today and every day. Salvation comes from the Lord. We must never, ever forget that, particularly when we're at sea in a storm. And because Jonah is so clear about that, because he's left us with that wonderful second half of that verse, salvation comes from the Lord, we must grab hold of that promise and make it real in our lives. And if we can, try and pass it on to those around us. May the people around us see that we have this wonderful assurance of eternal life and salvation through Jesus Christ. Let me close in a prayer, and I'm going to use the following verse from that passage in Romans that I just read. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Jesus Christ had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.